You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. What should we do then, the crowd asked. Now notice the answer. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. You become a giver, and if you're not a giver, something's wrong. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Because what most of the tax collectors were doing this day, they would go and say, you owe this much, when you really only owe this much. What does Jesus ask of me? It's a question many believers ask. In today's message, Pastor Danny has the answer. Become a giver. Share with the less fortunate. If you have extra food, then give away your food. If you have extra clothes, then donate them to someone else. Practice being content until it becomes natural to you. Being a Christ follower means being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Your transformation is evident by your daily actions. So become a giver. Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Acts chapter 19 with today's edition of The Living Word. Acts chapter 18. We left off verse 19. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I'll come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at, he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem. Now that's interesting, and I didn't share it in any other service, but just a little nugget. He went up to Jerusalem. Caesarea is north, Jerusalem is south, so why wouldn't you say he went down to Jerusalem? Why? Because any direction you go to Jerusalem from, you go up, because it's 2,500 feet above sea level. All the tours we've done in Israel, sometimes I'd be nodding off in the bus and we're headed into Jerusalem in the evening and I knew when I, when I wake up when we're headed near Jerusalem because when we're going up, I knew we were getting close to Jerusalem. So we went up to Jerusalem, greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. But don't miss the next line. Though he knew only the baptism of John. So he's a learned man, thorough knowledge of the scriptures, taught about Jesus accurately, but he only knows the baptism of John. What's the baptism of John? It's a baptism unto repentance. And you'd be baptized because you've repented in water. And the picture, the symbolism is you go down into the water symbolizing your old life now is buried. 
You'd come up out of the water symbolizing that now you have a new walk and a new life because you're right with God now. And in the process, you're washed, you're cleansed, you're forgiven. A baptism unto repentance. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And I have to believe, based on the end of verse 25, that though he was learned, thorough knowledge of the scriptures, taught accurately about Jesus, but he only knew the baptism of John, I have to believe that what Priscilla and Aquila taught him more adequately was another baptism. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter three, says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus, after his resurrection, before he ascended back to the Father, gave his disciples some instructions. Here is some of the instruction. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated, came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So it happened. Acts 18, verse 27. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus where Apollos had just been. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I wish they'd have translated this different because scholars say that the way it really should be translated, did you receive the Holy Spirit since or after you believed? And the answer, no. We've not even heard there's a Holy Spirit. So Apollos did not teach them about the ministry or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he didn't know. He only knew the baptism of John. And then Priscilla and Aquila, I believe, explained to him the way of God more adequately. I believe they taught him about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them or upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all, and here's what you clearly have in the text. Two baptisms. Now, when I've taught this before, and rightly so, I've emphasized 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because clearly that's the main subject of the text. But it's not the only subject of the text. There's also John's baptism. So it's two baptisms. Now I'm going to be real technical. Listen carefully. I believe the more important baptism is John's. Why? Because without John's baptism, you can't be saved. You see, you're baptized unto repentance. And the baptism in water signifies what's happened spiritually in your life. You've repented, you've turned from going your own way, and now you've turned to God's way. You've received Christ as Lord and Savior. You've repented and believed in Jesus. And now you're saved. But I don't want that truth or that statement to lessen the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If someone truly has repented, the fruit of the sincerity of that repentance will be clearly seen in their life. Luke's gospel, chapter three. Luke chapter three, verse seven. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, there's a greeting, huh? Now, if you compare the gospel accounts, he really honed in on the Pharisees and teachers of the law when he addressed that way. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Do not depend on your church background or your religious heritage. That's not where it's at. Have you repented? For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit in keeping with repentance will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's called hell. What should we do then, the crowd asked. Now notice the answer. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. You become a giver, and if you're not a giver, something's wrong. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Because what most of the tax collectors were doing this day, they would go and say, you owe this much when you really only owe this much. And they would take the this much and pocket the this much. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money. They were doing the same thing that the tax collectors were doing. And don't accuse people falsely for their own personal advantage. Be content with your pay. In other words, repentance is evidenced by a transformed or a changed life. Paul said, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. No walkie, no talkie. James put it this way. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? In other words, you can have faith in God and not be saved if you've never repented. To truly repent, there must be godly sorrow for sin. It's not just, I'm just going to start a new lease in life, lease on life. No, 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 no. Biblical repentance is coming to a place where you're convicted about sin. Tremendous verse. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. I've never met anybody, you will never meet anybody that's truly repented and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that later says, I'm really sorry I made that decision. But worldly sorrow brings death. 
You want to know a living biblical example to the last part of that verse? His name is Judas Iscariot. And even though chosen to be one of the 12 apostles, Jesus said he was the devil from the beginning. He never repented. And when things didn't work out the way he planned, he got the 30 pieces of silver, but in remorse, not repentance, he goes back to the temple. He throws the 30 pieces of silver into the temple. And you know what he did after that? He went out and he hung himself. You talk about a literal living example, dead example now, but worldly sorrow brings death. Did you know you can't repent unless God grants you the privilege of repentance? Did you know that? Some people think, well, I got, I got to sow some wild oats and then I'll make a decision for the Lord. You won't make a decision for the Lord when you decide to. You say, prove that. 2 Timothy 2.25, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Acts 11.18, even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let me give you a better verse. Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws him. Otherwise, if conviction were constant, before you came to know Jesus Christ, you'd be convicted of sin every day of your life. You'd be convicted of your need for Jesus every day of your life. But that wasn't my experience. I know that's not anybody's experience. Why? Because there's those moments. There's those periods of time where the Father, and we sang the song. We didn't even coordinate that together, but it goes great with the message. Come to the altar. And the Father, his arms are open wide. There are those times, though, when God draws us one of those times was when I was a teenager in high school. We were at a crusade, the Freddie Gage Crusade in my hometown of Hartsville, South Carolina. Amazing. Freddie Gage grew up on the streets of Houston. He was a gang leader. Bad dude. Got gloriously saved, became an evangelist. My pastor invited him and, and we hosted at the football stadium this Freddie Gage Crusade for a whole week. I was amazed how many people in my hometown came out. Pretty much the majority of the middle school and the high school were there every night. At the football stadium, packing the place out. I'll never forget one night the invitation was given, and I was so convicted. I'm standing beside my buddy Rodney Bird. Neither one of us Christians, neither one of us. And I looked over at Rodney. I can tell we're both convicted. We're both convicted. I see tears in his eyes. He says, Danny, let's go. And I stood there frozen, and I refused. And that wasn't the only time I refused. I refused many times. In those moments, I knew God was calling me. I'm thankful that he did not give up on me before I said yes. I'm so thankful. I am so thankful, Lord. The danger of repeatedly refusing to really repent and give your life to Jesus Christ, the danger, there's more than one. Matthew 13, quoting the prophet Isaiah, Jesus said, for this people's heart has become Calloused. It's a simple illustration. I've used it often. I'm going to use it again. I have on both hands calluses, which hopefully proves I'm not a, a lazy bum. <laughs> and I could take a pen right now and I could stick it right here under this callus, just below it, and I would feel it. And it, it would hurt. I would get the point. I can take that same needle. I can put it in this callus. And I can sing lolly doo all day, you know, because there's, no, there's no pain. Why? It's the same point, but here there's sensitivity. Here there used to be sensitivity. As a matter of fact, when the callus was being formed, it was extra sensitive. But now over time, it's hardened. And that's one great danger of repeatedly 
refusing the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the drawing by the Father to repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's another danger. I'm not going to turn and read it, but you read about it in Romans chapter 1. And three times God says it. People that had the knowledge of God but refused the knowledge of God and decided to go their own way. And three times it says so in God's time. And I don't know what time that is. That's God. Three times it says God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. In other words, there are times in some people's lives that God says, you've refused me enough times now Then you want to go your way. I won't bother you anymore. I'll just let you go. Terrible place to be. Awful place to be. Repentance and receiving Christ as Lord and Savior then opens the door for the second baptism. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was taught early on my Baptist background, and I'm not knocking them for this, but I learned from the scriptures differently. Scriptures first, experience second. I was taught that you were baptized into the body of Christ. Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and you got the Holy Spirit, and that's it. They never told me. Like Apollos, they were learned. They had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. They taught about Jesus accurately, but they did not know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 17, Jesus said to his disciples, the Holy Spirit is with you, and he will be in you. And then he said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift, and he'll come upon you. And those are the three aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and there, you find them clearly in the Greek terms used in these verses. Let me give you the three Greek terms. One is, he said, John 14, he is with you. It means beside. Some people call the Holy Spirit the paraclete. That means he's the one who comes along beside and encourages and things like that, you know. But he comes beside you. The Holy Spirit is the one that leads us to Christ. He's the one that brings the conviction and leads us to Christ. He's with us. And then the second, he'll be in you. Different Greek term. He's with you, he shall be in you. Now, John 20, 22, after the resurrection, Jesus breathed on the disciples and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. It's my belief that now the ministry of the Holy Spirit for the believer, that as soon as you believe in Christ, he comes to live in you. Now, Romans chapter eight and verse nine says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So you have to have the Holy Spirit based on that verse. You have to have the Holy Spirit. But then there's a third ministry, and it's described by this Greek term. And it's the one used in places like Acts chapter 1, when Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come on or upon you. It's this Greek term right here. And there's the three aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's with you, leads us to Christ, draws us. He's in you when you repent and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But then he wants to come in God's time and according to God's will, upon us. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Once you're initially baptized in the Holy Spirit, then Ephesians says you're to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to jump ahead of this one. Somebody asked D.L. Moody one time, why do we have to keep being refilled? You know what Moody said? Because we leak. Now, I'm going to challenge you in the last few minutes I have, because I know we got a lot of different backgrounds here, 
to let the scriptures teach you what we're talking about here. The scriptures, not your background, not your preconceived ideas. Three ministries of the Holy Spirit, with, in, upon. I was taught that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, that the supernatural gift of tongues was the ability for these disciples to speak in the various tongues of the nations represented there, and they, they gave the gospel. Well, that can't be true because if they gave the gospel, why did Peter have to get up and give the gospel? Acts 8, 11, we heard them declaring the wonders of God, the megalios, the magnificent, excellent, splendid wonders of God. Their voices were directed heavenward, which is what 1 Corinthians tells us, chapter 14, about someone who speaks in a supernatural gift of tongues. They don't speak to men, they speak to God. That's what it says. And the unique miracle at Pentecost was everybody heard them in their own language. But when you get to 1 Corinthians 14 and Paul is talking about tongues in the church and trying to correct the, the abuse of tongues in the Corinthian church, he said that if, if it's ever used in a public setting in a church meeting, there must be interpretation, which tells us that most of the time you don't understand what they're saying. It is a language, but it's not a language you know. And it's a language of the spirit directed heavenward. That's what the Bible says. Now, there are different uses of this supernatural gift of tongues. It's a common evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. But I don't believe it's the only evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you'd have to take the 1 Corinthians 12 in the section where Paul says, are all prophets, are all evangelists, do all work miracles, do all speak in tongues? And the answer to those questions is no, not everybody's a prophet, not everybody's an event, not everybody's a, an apostle, not everybody does miracles, works of miracles, supernatural. I've, I've had been prayed for by the best of them. I've been to crazy meetings where they tell you, just, just start saying stuff, you know? And I, my motor never started. God hasn't given me the gift. But God gave my wife the gift a few years ago. I'm still jealous. I'm the pastor of the church. Why, why do you bypass me and give it to her? But you know, I'm not concerned about that at all. I'm concerned about, I want the power of God on my life. I want the power of God in the ministry he's called me to, more than ever. So different things the scripture says about this supernatural gift of tongues. It can be an evidence of the baptism, but it's not the only evidence. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Prophecy is speaking for God by the Spirit to men. It's a form of prophesying every time I get up here and expound the scriptures. That's a form of prophesying. And we want to do it in a language you can understand. It'd be crazy if I got even spoken some supernatural tongue language and you're just going, that's a weird church. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 and 15, Paul not only mentions, but he says he practiced praying in tongues. So there's a tongue that's a prayer language, as people call it. He says, I will sing with my spirit, talking about a supernatural gift of tongues in the spirit. And so there's a praise, a worship. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, among the supernatural gifts, when it mentions tongues, it says different kinds of tongues, supernatural tongues. So not just one, and they have different purposes. 1 Corinthians 14, 22, Paul says, tongues are a sign to unbelievers. That's what happened at Pentecost. Holy Spirit's come down, comes down on these disciples, gives them a supernatural gift of tongues. They're declaring the wonders of God. Crowd gathers, sees, and hears. And the first thing they accused him of is being drunk, and Peter corrected that. 
But that gift of tongues was a sign because most of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, had rejected Jesus, Messiah, and agreed to put him on a cross. We're so glad that you joined us for today's edition of The Living Word. Thanks for being a part of our listening audience as we study the book of Acts. If you'd like to hear today's message again or more from Pastor Danny, visit ccfstpete.church. You're also invited to join our Bible reading plan. Just look under the resources tab on our website for more information. As you make your way through the Bible, you might be surprised how something hits your heart exactly where you're at. God's Word has a way of doing that, and it's unmistakably God's way of speaking to you. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment and ask you to partner with us here on The Living Word. Would you join with us in praying for the listeners of this program? You never know how someone might be impacted by hearing about God over the radio, even if they weren't intending to. Pray that listeners would be open to hearing the gospel message. Pray also that we would continue to seek God's will for this program in teaching the Word and reaching the world. One additional thing that we'd ask you to pray about is if God would be leading you to support the Living Word financially. If so, you can find a way to do that through our website, ccfstpete.church. Just click on the Give tab. We're so grateful for your support. Thanks for praying, giving, and listening here on The Living Word.